Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I do want to thank each of you for listening, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show, making this show economically viable, and uh, their sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corporation, Miranda Gold and Precipitate Gold and Renaissance Gold. And by the way, uh, I will be talking to uh, the CEO at Miranda Gold uh, a little later in the day uh, at around 4.30 or so uh, New York time. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me uh, Frank Vernuccio. Um, he holds a Juris Doctorate degree. He is uh, the editor-in-chief of the New York Analysis and Policy and Government uh, the New York Analysis of Policy and Government, and the co-host of the popular show um, and Nothing But the Truth on WVOX. That's a, a station in Westchester County here in New York. Um, he is a regular columnist and contributor for a number of newspapers and other outlets and previously was an editor of legislative affairs for a major publishing company. Before moving to writing and broadcasting full-time, he served in both Democrat and Republican administrations within New York State. Welcome, uh, Frank, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, it's great to be with you. Just one note, we've changed the name of our show from a nothing but the truth to the Vernuccio Allison Report. Okay, very good. Thank you for helping us out with that because uh, okay. I was looking. Yeah, the Vernuccio, and what what is the other part of it? Allison Report, Vernuccio Allison Report. Okay, excellent. So if people just go to uh, WVOX, uh, they can they can find you there then, I guess. Absolutely. Every Saturday morning starting at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, excellent. Well, it's finally good, it's, it's, it's good finally, uh, to be able to talk to somebody in my own area code, 718. You're in Westchester <laughs> County, I'm in Queens County, so it's a, a short trip away. Um, our economic crisis is being ignored, you say. Uh, who is ignoring it? 
I would say it's a combination both for political reasons, the administration, as well as for the most part the popular media, which tends to be very pro the current administration in Washington. If you look at the real numbers, if you look at the fact that we slipped back into recession in the last quarter of 2012, if you look at the historically high gasoline prices, if you look at the long-term unemployment rate and the major unemployment rate, if you look at the fact that our exports are dropping, if you look at the rising price of food, um, the lack of exports that we are facing at this point, our economic situation is quite dire. And yet, if you listen to the popular media, if you listen to the president, as I'm sure you will tonight at the State of the Union, you won't hear a heck of a lot about how bad the economic situation is and how bad it continues to get. Yeah, this, um, well, I, you know, I just, you would think that, you know, sensational news, bad news sells newspapers. I mean, you know, the newspapers are always filled with, uh, with murder stories and, you know, intrigue and affairs and all kinds of things that are not healthy and good for human beings. Uh, why, why ignore it? You know, I, my explanation would be that the sponsors of shows don't, you know, they want to sell their products. So if CNBC, for example, has a bunch of corporate sponsors, if people think that the world is coming to an end, they're going to pull in their horns and save their money and probably what they should be doing. But um, is that is that how you would explain it? I think that that's part of it, but I think there's a lot more to it as well. I, I You and I, Jay, have, have watched the media for quite a while. And the fact is, I don't think we've ever seen as biased a media as we're seeing today. And the bias on the part of the media in favor of the current administration in the White House has been so substantial that I think it's a no bad news mode that they're in. And uh, to say that the economy over the past four years of the Obama administration, which admittedly started with a very dire economic situation, but instead of making it better, it has made it worse. And I don't think that's a story that the media seems willing to report on. Why do you say it's made it worse? Well, again, we have to look at the numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Unemployment is now higher than it was when a President Obama took office. We are now, the recession that we had um, ended around 2009, ostensibly, but historically, since the end of World War II, most recessions uh, have had a good bounce-back period. We have not had a good bounce-back period at all. Mm-hmm. We've had anemic growth since 2009. And now, again, in the last quarter of 2012, we're back into recession. All this despite priming the pump with almost a trillion dollars worth of stimulus money that seems to have just vanished into the other regions. So with all of that, we should have had an economy, you know, if there was any hint of success, we should have had a booming economy by now. In fact, the economy is heading back into the wrong direction. Yeah, so we were actually in uh, negative growth or uh, recession in the last quarter, I guess. It was the the full quarter, right, or was it the last month? No, it was the last quarter, I believe. The last quarter. So, you know, we're hearing... By the way, Christmas spending, so that should have really shown some more growth. Right, that would be the Christmas uh, the Christmas uh, quarter. So, well, you know, we're told, you know, people that are saving money are really getting hurt badly. Somebody said on this show recently that uh, 
80% of the savings in America are held by people that are 55 years of age and older. And, you know, a lot of those people no longer have incomes and they're relying or thought they would be relying on their Social Security, on their incomes from their savings. Uh, but they're getting nothing these days with uh, the interest rates pushed down to artificially low levels. Of course, the government tells us that the inflation rate is 1.7%. So I guess maybe... Uh, e- even if it's, even if it is that low, and I don't believe it is, but even if it is that low, you're going to pay taxes on the income that you get from your interest income. Uh, and, and, uh, if inflation is, let's say, 1.7%, you're not getting much more than that anyway on the interest rate, no matter how far out on the yield curve you go. Well, Jay, you're exactly right, but we have to look at what the real inflation numbers are. As anyone who's ever gone grocery shopping will tell you, food prices just continue to go up and up and up. Um, if you filled your car at the pump, you know that gasoline is now officially at a historic high level. And it has more than doubled, or I think it's actually it has doubled uh, since 2009 when the president took office. So inflation in all the basics, the basics of transportation, the basics of heating your home, the basics of food shopping... Um, they've all gone up dramatically. So inflation for the basics is certainly far more than 1.7%. And you didn't mention health care. All I know is that our health care oh, costs, and I don't know what's, right there. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen under Obamacare. I know that that's, that's an uncertainty that has a lot of people, uh, and, and small businesses really very worried, right? And they should be. Um, on my radio show, I have a couple of small sponsors, and one of them just told me that uh, he, had approximately 55 employees, he's laying off a sufficient number of employees to fall under the 50 level so that he's not going to have to cover his employees under Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently there have been some articles that recently have discussed how the, because of the way Obamacare is structured, um, it's going to cost a family of four tremendously more after it's implemented to cover their entire family um, than it would have without Obamacare. So the, the chief purpose of the whole plan um, seems to have gone out the window. Yeah, it reminds me of a of a T-shirt that I saw recently. Uh, it read, uh, "If you think healthcare is expensive now, wait until it's free." <laughs> And of course, I, I, you know, we, we have to look at also at the Canadian and, uh, and British systems, which mm-hmm. basically are versions of Obamacare. And it, they wind up having a bifurcated health care program where the, what you get for free is so poor that most people tend to, if they can afford it, go to private clinics and pay full fare. So that's another expense that will be added on to your, your health care cost. Yeah. Well, it's called socialism, I guess, and, and the people that can't afford it or don't have money are being uh, are being subsidized by people who can. And then, of course, if you add many more people into the system, then you uh, you know it's going to cost more. So uh, that's you, you know the, it's just the way it is. It uh, it seems to me, and I don't know what your experience is, Frank, but when I you know I'm an older guy now, so I see a doctor more often than I did did when I was 29. And uh, when I when I go to see the general practitioner that I go to see all the time, I know he's not a happy camper anymore. I know, you know, there was once a day, uh, once a time in America when doctors, you know, in small communities and big cities, uh, you know, were at the top of the social echelon pretty much. They were right up there with, uh, you know, the highest regarded people. And in my view, rightly so, why would I, 
you know, why would I not hold my doctor in high esteem if he saves my life and helps me with my health? But it seems to me that, uh, and I don't know where you come out on this, but the insurance companies have, especially since, uh, let's say, Hillary Care back in the Obama, uh, in uh, the Clinton days, we had a major change in the healthcare industry, it seems to me, and, uh, and, and we started to have uh, HMOs and that sort of thing came into being where the government started regulating and trying to force costs down and then insurance companies started to really control what doctors could do. And I know some of the older doctors that I've known, these guys are saying, you know, I don't want to use, I don't want to take any health care plans because the insurance companies are going to keep me from from being a doctor. They're going to keep me from knowing my patient. I'm not allowed to spend enough time with my patients to learn to know them. Have you run into anything like that with doctors? That's an excellent point. And in fact, under a lot of the health care plans, the only way that doctors really make money is through ordering test after test after test. And I don't know if you've had the experience, <laughs> yeah. but you um, you walk into a doctor's office, and before you even tell them what you're there for, they ask you about whether you've had a battery of tests and try to sign you up for them. Um, I, I recently had a personal experience. I, I Frankly, I hate going to doctors. But I had an earache so bad that I finally broke down and went. And I walked in. I told the doctor I had an earache, and he said, Have you had a colonoscopy lately? <laughs> and I said, Doc, it's been a long time since I've had Biology 101, but I don't think you can take a look at my earache through a colonoscopy. <laughs> and, and, and I've heard similar stories like that from numerous folks, and it's because of the economics of the way a physician's practice now under insurance plans is set up. You don't yeah. really make a lot of money by listening to a patient and trying to solve a problem. You make money through these tests. And it's right. great for the physician because he doesn't have to do the test but he gets a piece of the action, and it's a great way of making money. But it's destroyed, really, medical practice, I think, in the country. Yeah, that's, it's interesting, that uh, colonoscopy uh, experience. <laughs> I would say that uh, my physician kept after me year after year to do one of those things, and I kept saying, no, 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 and I even wrote a, a little thing in, in, the, in, his, uh, in his chart, in my chart, for his records, uh, holding him harmless in case something happened, so I wouldn't have to go and, and do it. You know? But now I'm, now I'm understanding why it was that, that he was after me every year to do it. I, I, I always thought it was for my own good, but, uh, and maybe it is, you know, the numbers are there, I suppose, but uh, some justification for insurance companies. But so I think that we would agree that healthcare is a you know, and and if you combine these things that average people have to have, you know, and it's not like if I were really a wealthy guy, you know, and and I didn't ha- and and food comprised uh, you know one percent of my total budget, uh, you know, and all these other things you're talking about together was one or two or three percent of my total budget, then I wouldn't care, right? But if I'm an average guy, and I don't know what average is these days in America, if you got a salary of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, if that's average, I don't know, something in that area. Well, I think that if you're in that range as a, with a paycheck, uh, with a salary like that, probably uh, the food prices going up and the costs that, as they're going up are really significant for you. Whereas if you're really wealthy, the people I see on CNBC and all that, many of them are very wealthy people. For them, it, it, it's a non-issue, right? Well, that's, that, again, that, that's correct. Because the, the group that has really taken it on the chin lately has been middle-income folks. Um, you know, the well-to-do have tax shelters, I guess, um, the job situation for the middle-income folks has really been the hardest. This has been, it's, it's been called the white male over 40 recession. And it's absolutely true. 
because the types of jobs that have really gone down in this particular recession have been those traditionally held by, by males um, over 50 or over 40. Um, and that's been a tragedy because that has been the mainstay of the American economy. And by the way, if we're looking at which groups have taken it on the chin as well, uh, minority neighborhoods have been terribly beset by, by unemployment. The unemployment figures are so bad, I think if it was anything under the President Obama in the White House, there would have been riots in the street by now. Mm. But of course, mm. the President has a cover um, for a variety of reasons, obviously, and uh, so we haven't had that type of protest. Yeah. Well, the rhetoric is right, uh, I suppose, uh, for those minority people from our president. But are the policies really helping them is another issue entirely. Uh, it, it, it might, yeah, the middle class, and Gene Epstein was touching on this when I talked to him earlier, and he's going to have uh, the cover story at Barron's this week, but he was talking about, he was going through the numbers, uh, the need to raise taxes and so forth, and how it's going to be the middle class is going to get squeezed really, really hard, according to Gene. That's the way he sees it, and I guess that's been the direction of things. Things. Well, let's look at the the economy in general. I, I I think corporate profits have, at least among large companies, have been pretty good, though, haven't they? They have. They have been pretty decent. I, I think a lot of it, though, has come not from increased business, but from layoffs. Yes. Um, this has been a heck of a time <laughs> to cut back on your workforce. And so if you take a deeper look into those those profit and loss statements, you're going to find it's coming a lot in many cases from savings rather than from increased profits. Yeah. Or increased well, sales, I, I should say. Yeah, they, they're squeezing the workers, uh, laying people off, doing with less labor, probably the information technology or the uh, the computer, computerization and all that, you know, the, the technology uh, has probably helped save some cost as well and, and do with less people. Uh, there's that's probably for pretty sure. Uh, I listened to this guy Bill Dunkelberger, who's on Bloomberg Radio uh, this morning. He said big companies are growing at about four percent. Little companies are not showing any growth at all, uh, and so we've got about a two percent growth in, in corporate earnings or something like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it seems to me though that as you say, your friend or somebody you you ran and uh, that you talked to recently is looking to stay under 50 employees so that he doesn't have to abide with, uh, with the, uh, doesn't have to um, uh, follow the Obama mandates. But in, on the other hand, um, you know, Bill Dunkelberger was saying that's the way, you know, that's the way a lot of his small companies are, are performing. And he, and he, uh, he tracks the small businesses. That's what he does and writes, writes on, on that topic. But he's saying that, you know, there's nothing that would keep the Obama administration from not going down to, you know, to fewer employees, you know, and they're making the number lower. Well, and again, that's the tragedy that the American worker is facing at this point. It makes all the sense in the world under Obamacare to reduce the number of employees you have. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we're talking about increased taxes, and again, this accent on taxes on the wealthy, which turns out to be just about everybody, yeah. um, you have a lot of incentive not to maximize your profits. But if you can save money by laying off workers or by not expanding your business, well, that's one way to go. You were mentioning exports, and you're saying that uh, you know my my thought was here that with the natural gas and the fracking and all that going on, that we are in better shape than we were in the past with respect to our trade balance. But uh, you and I were talking, you know, off mic earlier, and you had mentioned that exports are down very significantly. Talk to us about the significance of that for the economy as a whole. If in fact, and in, in fact, it is, our exports are down over five percent. 
but at the same time we're importing less oil. That means the import-export picture for the United States is even worse because it simply means we're making less stuff that we're selling overseas. Mm-hmm. So if we're making less stuff, there's less jobs out there, there's less economic activity, there's less subcontractors being uh, brought on board to do that. That really is a harbinger of a very serious economic downturn. Yeah. It's, uh, what about, uh, you're very well versed in New York state policy, uh, and fracking is something that our governor is not allowing us to do. What, what are your thoughts on... on um, on this fracking phenomenon and the increase in energy in the United States, because that's seen by some uh, as making, you know, giving us the possibility of being energy independent within the next, I don't know, five, ten years or something like that. Let's take a look at a comparison between the central part of New York State and the neighboring portion of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which, which abuts that part of New York State. That part of right. Pennsylvania is booming. There are jobs. There are economic opportunities. There, are, everything's going relatively well. Right over the border in New York State, it's a horrible depression. People are leaving. Kids are getting up and moving out as soon as they finish school, um, basically because fracking has been prohibited in New York State. The problem with it is, if there was a truly significant environmental issue involved, you could understand the need for caution. But test after test after test, and report after report after report has shown that fracking, for the most part, is totally safe. And for the governor of a depressed state like New York to forbid fracking is really to deny economic opportunity to his own people in pursuit of nothing but an ideology that has no substantial scientific background to it. What is he, is he playing to the environmentalist? What, who is he playing to? Well, I, there, there's a very powerful power structure in New York State. Um, downstate, <laughs> Where you and I live, mm-hmm. um, really, raw material extraction, uh, energy extraction is not a significant part of the economy. No, of course, no. Upstate, of course, it is. The legislature, mm-hmm. however, pretty much is controlled by downstaters. Uh, the governor himself actually hailed originally from Queens, as, as do you. Yeah. Um, the uh, Senate majority leader... And the assembly, uh, the speaker of the assembly, are both downstaters. So, really, the needs of the people upstate tend to be overlooked. There is a strong environmental political uh, feeling in the state of New York, um, and that particularly affects the people in New York City and downstate because that's not where their economy comes from. And they, it's, it's no cost to them to subscribe to these unscientific scientific biases against drilling or against fracking, um, but it certainly hurts the people of, of upstate New York. New York has become almost two totally different states in terms mm-hmm. of their economy, in terms of their economic profile, in terms of economic opportunities. And right now, the biases of the folks downstate where you and I live um, are really wrecking the economic opportunities for the people in the rest of the state. Yeah, well, certainly down here, uh, probably a lot more money too, as well as uh, as well as legislators, because the population is is bigger down here. So, I can understand that. It doesn't um, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes sense politically, but it just uh, you know it's uh, so. Matt Damon's movie, I can't remember the name of it right now. I'm losing. Uh, is that recent- or is that the other one? That's no, the other one. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, have you seen it? 
I haven't seen it. Um, I, I, I have seen some of the previous ones. There was one that was kind of amusing. Um, it, it showed fire coming out of a faucet. And right. it turns out it had absolutely nothing to do with fracking whatsoever. In terms of some of the reports, I recall reading one that talked about deaths as a result of fracking. And I was kind of curious about that, so I looked into it further. It turns out the two deaths that came from, quote, fracking activities, unquote, had to do with two drivers who were driving along an icy road to a fracking site, slipped off the road in the ice, and, and tragically were killed in a car accident. Uh, <laughs> that was considered a fracking accident. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess you can, uh, you can sort of uh, make anything up you want, but I mean, that would hardly be due to fracking, although I suppose if you're driving to your work... Um, to your job and the same thing happens, whatever your job is, you could blame the job for it, I suppose, but not very rationally. Well, you know, so what's, what's the, how did we get ourselves in this mess? We, we've got an economy, um, you know, I, I think, in my view, and, and tell me what you think, but I think that we have, that we're in a depression and that we've never really coming, come out if you look at the real inflation rate. And you know, let's say if you take the real inflation rate and, and factor that into GDP, that we are not growing, that we have not, that maybe we're not as bad off as we was, were right after the Lehman Brothers failure, say 2009, 2010, 2008, 2009, but that in fact we have never really come out of this funk and that we are in a really bad situation yet, uh, that we're still in a depression. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree. We have to look at the origins of, of the collapse that occurred um, at the end of the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1970s, under the Carter administration, the Community Reinvestment Act was enacted. And it mandated that banks make certain loans that really were not in the best interest of the banks or of the, the stockholders of the banks, I guess. Or maybe um, even the, or maybe even the, the borrowers. Well, that's correct, too. Absolutely. Yeah. It said that you had to, the banks had to lend money to people who really may not have had the wherewithal to pay it back. Um, that continued on. It was harmful enough. But in the late 1990s, under the Clinton administration, the provisions of the Community Reinvestment Act of the late 70s were strengthened so that it really mandated further amounts of loans that had to be given out by banks. At that point in time, it was inevitable that sooner or later, the fiscal collapse, the, the collapse of the financial sector that finally occurred towards the end of the Bush administration, it was inevitable. It was going to happen sooner or later. Now, even though that was a terrible situation and it plunged the nation into recession, the odds are that left to the economy left to its own devices probably would have recovered in about a year or two. Mm -hmm. It would have been rough for a year or two, but it would have recovered and recovered, I think, quite strongly. Right. Instead, what did we do? We spent almost a trillion dollars in stimulus money that went absolutely nowhere. It went basically to companies like General Motors to make sure that their overblown union contracts continued to exist. One of the great myths of the stimulus program is that, well, if we don't bail out companies like General Motors, they'll disappear forever. Now, anyone who's even opened up an economics textbook should laugh at that concept. If General Motors had to go into bankruptcy, it would have reorganized into a leaner, meaner, more efficient company that today would be in great shape, and with it, the economy. But instead, we invested almost a, bi a trillion dollars in green companies, in all sorts of things, most of which, if we now review where they've gone with that money, um, 
having a certain percentage of them have gone bankrupt, and a lot of them have done nothing more than they were doing before. So the, the, a trillion dollars was taken out of the civilian economy, given into the hands of government, redistributed in the typical inefficient manner that government has, and as a result, the economy has been dragging ever since. Yeah, so uh, indeed, and uh, you mentioned the the bailout of General Motors. I would also say that there was some uh, some precedent set there with respect to the bondholders too. In other words, property rights taken away from uh, from Americans, which I think is very un-American in a way. Uh, the bondholders were were not treated uh, as they would have expected to have been treated, and as they should have been, at least according to the past. If you're uh, to have your to have your property basically taken away from you by government, but then I guess on the other hand, if you think about it, taxes is another form of confiscation of wealth uh, by government from uh, from the people. But at least if your legislators uh, vote for a tax, uh, you know, for some sort of tax rate, then that's one thing. But out of the blue comes uh, you know a raping of the bondholders in essence, and so that also. I mean, uh, it's just uh, it, it were new precedents were set uh, that were so uh, so totally uh, against the free market um, and freedoms that we have uh, enjoyed in America for so long. Uh, you know, but isn't debt the key? Isn't debt the key? Didn't we get ourselves into trouble? Um, by having this easy monetary policy, you mentioned the Housing Act. You know the forced lending, uh, the required lending to people that probably shouldn't have taken on loans for, to a great extent. But but that wouldn't have been possible if Alan Greenspan hadn't pumped so much money into the system, would have it been? Look, we've been pumping money into the system ridiculously for so long. You know, it, the, back in the 1930s, actually it was 19, late 1920s, I believe. Um, if you recall your old history textbook, there were pictures of, of Germans with wheelbarrows full of money going to the grocery store to try mm-hmm. to buy some milk for the family. Um, we are living under a myth, and unfortunately it's been prevalent for far too long, that we can just print more money, cut interest rates to the bare minimum, and the economy will just be fine, that there's no mm. piper that has to be paid at the end of the right. tune. And we have done this almost habitually for decades. Sooner or later, that's going to catch up to us. Sooner or later, we're going to be like those Germans taking a wheelbarrow full of money to the grocery store to buy a container of milk. Yeah, well, that's what I was uh, getting at with Gene Epstein when we talked to him earlier in the day, too. Gene was talking about, uh, you know, how we're going to have to, he says, there's only two choices. He says, you've got to cut. Uh, we got to cut spending or raise taxes or a combination of the two. And I said, Gene, I think you're ignoring the one the politicians are most likely to take, and that is to print money. And, of course, uh, printing money requires uh, people to be aware uh, of what that means. You're debasing your currency. Your purchasing power is, is eroding. And as we were saying a little while ago, it's eroding much more rapidly than most people admit, certainly much more than that 1.7% that the government is telling us our, our, uh, our, our cost of living is. So... Now, this is really important stuff, but we're coming on another fiscal cliff of sorts, are we not? And and how is this going to be resolved? And the Republicans, on the one hand, are trying to protect property rights, in essence. That's the way I see it, in sim- simplistic terms. The Democrats, on the other hand, uh, can't get enough socialism, and they'd like to tax more, and, and they don't care about printing money. Republicans, unfortunately, to a great extent, don't seem to care about printing money either, as long as they get their programs through. I don't see it, I don't see a solution to this. Do you? Do you? How is this going to work? I mean, 
ultimately, you can't fool Mother Nature. And as you say, we're going to have hyperinflation. Some people that I've had on this show are deflationists, like Robert Prechter, A. Gary Schilling, and others, think that we're going to go in the other direction. But something's going to give one way or another. We can't just keep kicking the can down the road, uh, meandering along and thinking that we're going to get out of this uh, this thing without some very traumatic events. Uh, but but how is this going to play out? Are we going to have this sequester is coming up pretty soon? Is that what's going to? Are we going to see some forced cuts in spending? Unfortunately, sequester. If you recall how it began, there were cuts that were so irrational and so across the board. Instead of being targeted to things that should be cut, that everyone thought, well, no one's really going to ever let that happen. We'll have to come to some kind of agreement because the sequester cuts really allow a lot of the fat to continue while cutting muscle. Mm-hmm. But we haven't been able to come to an agreement, and we have to look at why we haven't come to an agreement, and it has to do with the nature of politics. Since we've allowed the federal government to grow from what it was supposed to be into the behemoth that it has become, it has become easy for politicians to get reelected time and time again by promising more and more to their constituents. No politician ever really lost a vote by saying, I'm going to make sure that you get less during the rest of my, or in my next term. He got elected by saying, I'm going to give you more in the next term. So it's in the, in, in the blood of the politicians to simply say, vote for me and you'll get more goodies, more stuff, next time I'm, I take office. Mm-hmm. And we haven't broken that cycle yet. And any politician who runs for office and says, I'm going to go to Washington and make sure that I'm going to bring less dollars back home, faces almost certain defeat. We somehow have to bring realism back to the voting booth and, you know, get the federal government back to where it's supposed to be. You know, the federal government of the Constitution has, has very limited authority. It's supposed to protect the country from foreign invasion, run the courts, protect our rights under the Bill of Rights, and so forth. Now we're coming into a situation where all the things that the government traditionally has been supposed to do and is constitutionally authorized mm-hmm. to do, protect the country, run the post office, which is falling apart, um, those are the things the government can no longer seem to afford to do. But yet it can, afford, it can somehow afford to provide greater and greater entitlements, more food stamps, more this and more that than ever before. We're seeing the government transform from what it was supposed to be and from what it should be doing into nothing more than a vast vote-getting machine. Well, that's exactly right, Frank. Unfortunately, we're out of time. You know, you, you mentioned the system of justice, and we talked to uh, Dana, Dana Siegelman, of course, before. And, you know, the sort of things that the government's supposed to do, it seems not to be doing, and all kinds of things it was never supposed to be doing, it's doing, and it's running us into bankruptcy. I don't know about you, but I, I think it was uh, um, one of our guests that recently pointed out that we are at the point now in the United States where 50% of the people vote for a living and 50% of the people work for a living. And that is going to change. That is going to change more in favor of those that vote for a living as the demographics pan out here. And I don't know about you. I don't see how the common sense is going to prevail given this sort of selfishness that everybody, I mean, and people, and this is just selfishness. People have to look after their own interests and that's what they're doing. So uh, I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, we're going to talk some more. Uh, in the near future uh, about this, Frank. I want to thank you very much for being with me. Uh, I think that, um, you know, we've got a lot. To, I'm going to start to listen in on your show, and, and uh, maybe we'll have some more things we can talk about from time to time. 
Jay, it was great being with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to talk to Ken Cunningham of Miranda Gold. Now, we were just talking about, Frank was talking about the debasing of the currency, printing money, how that's going to lead to disaster. Well, what people are doing that understand this, they are finding a way to try to hedge their wealth, to try to hang on to some of their wealth. And one of the ways to do that is by owning gold and gold shares. So Miranda Gold is a company that I have... Uh, that I have recommended in my newsletter. We're going to be right back with Ken Cunningham to talk to him about that company. Don't go away. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters voice america business network the bottom line in business Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, Ken Cunningham, and he's the CEO 
of another project generator company, uh, namely Miranda Gold Corp. As you know, uh, I've been uh, championing project generators uh, for some time, and we've had a couple, two, three, four, five of them on as sponsors of this show. So this is the first time that we've had Miranda Gold Corp. And I've, I've talked extensively as to why I like the project generator model, why it makes sense. You're really reducing um, uh, the dilution factor that I think is really brutal for most uh, junior mining companies, especially in this market when the share prices are or have been bludgeoned to such a great extent. And uh, so the project generator companies, especially those that were able to go in and buy good properties or get good properties for a song and a prayer uh, and then have uh, improve the prospects and do the low-cost uh, geological exploration work and then bring in companies that are able to finance and spend the, the higher risk dollars, the big dollars, to try to prove up and put drill holes into the ground uh, to determine and to prove up uh, ounces in the ground. Well, those companies over the long run have done very well, and no less an investor than Rick Rule, I know, uh, tells me that that's where he makes uh, most of his money in this sector is with the project generators. So we're really pleased to have uh, Ken Cunningham with us. Ken, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Jay, and I uh, appreciate the chance to be on the show and and obviously a chance to uh, talk a little bit to your audience. And uh, I totally agree with you, uh, project uh, generators, a great way, especially in uh, the markets that we have today. And, uh, you know, not only do I uh, obviously champion Miranda, but I uh, I personally own a, a number of prospect generators just for the uh, the reasons that you were alluding to. Uh, they just give you, uh, you know, an awful lot of opportunities to uh, to see that home run hit. And, and of course, uh, I've been lucky enough with, with some of my holdings to see that happen. And, uh uh, we're out there working hard to make sure that Miranda delivers that kind of uh, 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 wealth to our shareholders uh, down the road. Absolutely. Well, I might mention to our listeners that your shares are a mere 23 cents right now. There's 73.9 million shares, giving you a market cap of, uh, cap of around $17 million. And, you know, uh, it, human nature being what it is, people like to jump on the bandwagon when share prices are rising. They don't like to buy them when they're low. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, if you can discern the value or try to get a sense of what the value and what the prospects are, one of the things about a project generator company is that you have a lot of different projects. How many do you have in Miranda Gold? Well, we've got uh, we've got about 15 projects in our portfolio right now. We've tried to be uh, 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 quite uh, diverse in, in terms of what we're doing. We we're very focused. We only look for gold, and uh, we're a little bit different than some of the companies that your uh, uh, your uh, listeners uh, have heard about. We really don't want to be a producer, so uh, we focus on the exploration side, which. Uh, fits uh, perfectly with this uh, prospect generator joint venture business model. And the 15 projects that we have are uh, about uh, a dozen of those are in Nevada, which, of course, is uh, one of the the great uh, gold-producing regions of the world uh, with the Carlin and the Cortez trend. And then, uh, secondly, about three years ago, we wanted to give our shareholders a chance for... uh, uh, frontier jurisdiction that also had great gold potential. So we now have an office in Medellin, Colombia, and uh, contrary to what uh, most of the U.S. population uh, thinks about Colombia, Colombia has uh, has really come a long ways in the last ten years. Uh, uh, great government, and uh, they've taken care of a lot of the problems that uh, uh, you know the name Colombia was associated with. And uh, if you think about history. Uh, 
500 years ago when the conquistadors were uh, uh, shipping bars of gold uh, back to Spain. Uh, most of that was coming out of Colombia. And, and so Colombia really missed out on modern-day exploration, and uh, so Miranda's down there participating in that now. Yeah, so that's uh, that's an opportunity. I, I mean, the ability to go back. I mean, five years ago, uh, you know, probably would have freaked you, freaked a lot of people out if you were talking Colombia. But things have definitely changed. In fact, some people think some of the problems have been sort of exported to some of the other places like Mexico. But uh, well, I was going to suggest that, and I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't uh, absolutely think that's true. I don't want to rain on the parties of some of our project generators that have uh, projects in uh, in Mexico, and that's not to say that every place in Mexico is alike either. But what about Alaska? Do you 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 had one project in Alaska? Do you still have Do you still well, have that? We, we were active for two years in Alaska with Agnico Eagle, uh, a major mining company out of Canada, as a partner. Uh, they really adequately uh, in that two years tested the project, uh, tested the targets that we had. Uh, brought to them and uh, you know they were the type of targets that that uh, you know a major company was attracted in and uh, Marana really tries to again uh, not just the gold focus but we try to look for things that are big and uh, you know in the last uh, uh, half a dozen years or so we've had Newmont, Placer Dome, Barrick, Agnico, Newcrest as partners and that's because uh, we're uh, we're generating uh, the kinds of projects that these guys like to drill. Well, indeed, they're not going to fool around with something small. They're they're looking for multi-million ounce. What would you say for you know some of those larger names that you've mentioned? What would be the sort of hurdle number they're looking for? Five million ounces? I would say at least three. Yes, and at least again, three. Yeah. It, yeah. Some of that depends. Uh, you know, if if you're already close to some of their infrastructure, right. then that number goes down. If you're sure. remote, the number goes up. Sure, absolutely. Okay, well, let's get into some of the properties uh, that you have. Most of those, how many did you say are in Nevada? Most of them are in Nevada. Most of the properties are in Nevada, although uh, a week ago we announced uh, a new project called uh, Cerro Oro, which is in Colombia. And uh, it's a project that we're holding through application right now, so we're uh, uh, pushing the government to uh, convert that application into a license. And as soon as we do that, we've got a deal... uh, uh, in our back pocket, back pocket, excuse me, with a, a company called Prism Resources, and Prism will become our um, our partner down there. Uh, currently, we do have two other projects in partnership uh, with Ian Slater's company, which is called Red Eagle Mining. Uh, we're looking at a very aggressive drill program uh, on our Pablo Real project, and we all also have uh, very important to us a strategic alliance in Colombia, which means that. Uh, for the next three years, we have a partner that will be funding 70% of our prospect generation, and anything that we generate, they would then have the opportunity to uh, take those projects and designate them into a joint venture. So uh, essentially, we've, uh, uh, if you will, uh, created a, uh, a $2 million financing over the next three years that's non-dilutive to our shareholders and brings a really strong partner into our work in Colombia. So that's uh, both of those are projects that are in Colombia that you just mentioned the Red Eagle and uh, the Cerro Oro. Uh, Correct. So and and uh, you can't I guess can't tell us at this point who that strategic alliance might be with. Well, it's uh, it's with a, a strong company that we've done work with, with in the past, and uh, we do have a, uh, a letter of intent that we signed with them in uh, in January. So we're really looking forward to uh, to moving forward on that and. and uh, 
We've also got a, a strong project in Nevada, which is called Angel Wing. That's with a producer out of Australia called uh, Remilius Resources. Uh, the last two rounds of drilling in uh, in the fall of 2012 uh, hit uh, ore grade uh, type mineralization. We hit uh, five feet of uh, of a third of an ounce and five feet of about a half ounce. And uh, these guys are underground miners in Australia, so they're looking for these kinds of uh, uh, grades. And our angel wing uh, property is starting to deliver that. So right now they're uh, they've got a uh, actively putting in a plan of operations for an expanded drill program for 2013. And, uh, you know, it's the year is really starting to just come together uh, uh, in Nevada. We still have uh, snow on the ground, but, but uh, with the active partnerships that we have, uh, I can see partners spending over $2.7 million uh, testing our projects this year. And you're, t- you're talking Nevada and, and Columbia, right? That would be combined, yeah. Mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. other, the other thing your, your uh, listeners should know is that uh, uh, you mentioned Rick Rule earlier on. Mm-hmm. We did a yes. financing last year. Uh, we did it because I felt that uh, the markets were going to stay uh, soft and that everybody was going to be looking for money in 2013. And it, indeed, uh, so far, mm-hmm. that is the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned our market cap uh, at $17 million. Well, half of that market cap is is covered with cash. We have about eight and a half billion dollars in the treasury uh, that will sustain us for over three years. So, uh, mm-hmm. Miranda is going to be uh, a company that's going to continue to uh, be out there uh, uh, executing on on this uh, joint venture uh, prospect generating model. And uh, uh, I've got some great geologists working for me. I've got a technical background as, as an exploration geologist and. We've been uh, both fortunate and lucky in the past uh, when we work for major companies, uh, having been involved in major discoveries, and, and we're certainly uh, doing our best to try to bring that to our shareholders uh, uh, at Miranda. Uh, it's a, it's a well worth noting, again, just emphasizing to our listeners that project generators use other people's money. That's why that $8 million can go so far for three years or so. And then, of course, uh, the chances are there, and they're not, and they're reasonably good, perhaps, that you're going to hit something fairly nice uh, before you go through that money and your share prices should respond. Uh, this uh, Remilius, uh, they're a producer now, and are, are they on pretty strong financial footings? Are they yeah, pretty no, strong? Got a, they've got a super strong treasury there. They've been mm-hmm. producing an underground uh, uh, property. I believe it's called Wadi Creek uh, in Australia. It runs uh, a third of an ounce uh, uh, to the ton, so it's a real cash cow for them. And uh, uh, this project that they have with us in Nevada is their best project, uh, you know, outside of their Australian holdings. So they're quite, uh, quite uh, active and quite interested in seeing a major drill program there. So we should be uh, we should be treated with quite a bit of news coming forth uh, in 2013, I would guess, from given all the different projects you've got. Well, news is certainly the lifeblood for a junior company, and we uh, we try to uh, stay quite active. Uh, uh, we'll be putting out uh, a press release, I hope, next week. A little bit more about our alliance in uh, Colombia. We'll be putting out a forecast uh, for the. Uh, uh, the drilling that we anticipate seeing from partners, and then of course we're, uh, you know, always looking for new projects and whatnot. And you do have a lot of, as you say, you have a lot of properties that are you'll be looking for, for partners uh, to come into those. And of course, it's not the easiest time right now. Uh, I suppose you're probably 
got to be careful about which juniors to sign on with because a lot of those guys are going to have a hard time raising money. Well, in, in point of fact, we had uh, uh, terminated one of our projects, which is probably one of our better projects, uh, called Red Hill. Uh, it was held by a junior that uh, uh, was simply struggling to raise money, had come to us and wanted uh, some relief, uh, some major relief uh, on the 2013 contractual work. And it was just too important of a project for us to uh, to, to let go it sit uh, idle. So we've taken back 100% of that project, and we'll be looking for a stronger partner. So uh, okay. that's exactly true. Okay, Ken, I'm sorry I'm out of time. My engineer tells me I was out of time two minutes ago. So okay. uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I'll keep in touch with you. Thank you very much. And, of course, keep my own subscribers up to date on your story. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with a couple of seconds of closing thoughts on today's show. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Gold and Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and my engineer tells me I only have a minute and a half left. We ran a little bit uh, longer than I'd like. Uh, it's just always difficult uh, to get everything in uh, in two hours. Uh, but in any event, I just want to say I hope that you folks really enjoyed the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Dana. Uh, I thought she was uh, the story there about her father is is very touching. I would welcome any ideas, any 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 thoughts that uh, people might have that are opposed to that story. We'd like to hear what they have to say. But those of you who are in sympathy with her plight, and if it is as I believe it is, then it is a huge miscarriage of justice. And I think that what we have to realize is that. Uh, you know, justice has to be for all. You know, as we pledged allegiance to the flag, that's what America is supposed to be about. And uh, when political 
ideology or political, not even ideology, just selfishness gets in the way and party politics uh, uh, really bastardize the Constitution, then that's wrong. And, and, uh, and the justice system is, is it seemingly have gone, has gone off track with respect to, uh, to Dana's father, Don Siegelman. So if you're sympathetic, I would hope that you would go to them uh, try to help her out uh, with that. Uh, next week, my guests will be Peter Schiff, Mark Skousen, Amir Adnani uh, of Brazil Resources. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you uh, for listening. Uh, Tacey Trump, thank you, uh, my producer, Matt uh, Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.